you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning not to Acts, but instead to the Gospel according to Luke. As we turn to God's Word this morning, let's return to Him one more time in prayer and ask for His help. Let's pray. Almighty God, we bow our hearts before You. As we come before your word, would you open our minds and hearts to joyfully receive what we are to believe about you, as well as understand what duty is before us. May we not only agree with your word, Father, but also by the power of your Holy Spirit and in humble reliance upon Christ, delight in doing what you ask. Not primarily because we are your servants, but most importantly, because we are your children. Oh, Father, so speak to us through your written word that we may live our lives in a manner worthy of the glory of your incarnate word, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned a few moments ago, this is uh, week one of a uh, two-part series from Luke's uh, gospel on the theme of Thanksgiving. Civil Society in 2020. What one word could you choose to best describe it? Well, a word that I think can be used to describe it is polarized. Us versus them. In other words, I'm totally right. You are totally wrong. It's the old binary, on, off, yes, no, either, or. There's a totality, an absoluteness, and, and we can see that when we think of just two things, politics and pandemics. I mean, the polarization has been there all along. There's always been people opposed to one another, but the political life of our country and this public health crisis that we're in has just added fuel to what is just there in the first place. Uh, recently, I read this statement. This uh, man, a, a retired PCA minister, said this. Two seemingly contradictory currents mark our society. One, there is a denunciation of all claims of absolute truth. Two, yet there is also a fanaticism in which one position or group is absolutely right, nothing is ambiguous, and divergent views should be destroyed. I think he captures it well. It is contradictory, isn't it? Now, how did things get to this point? Let's step back for a moment. Whatever happened to just common courtesy and manners between people? Have, have all people forgotten the first words that we probably learned that were put into place so that we could relate well to one another? I mean, indeed, aren't please and thank you among the first words that parents teach their children because it's necessary for people to be able to relate well with one another. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage that addresses the issue of good manners, common courtesy. And as I believe we will come to see, it will draw our attention to what could be called the first rule of Christian manners. Join with me now as I read Luke 
17, verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he, that is Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Well, here in this orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus, Luke presents this encounter of the ten lepers and Jesus. Now, this may be a a familiar scene to some of you, to others maybe not so familiar. Uh, We're going to first look at the scene described by Luke, and that'll include the leper's condition, Jesus' compassion, the leper's response, and then Jesus' remarks. And then second, we're going to consider how what Jesus says will focus our attention on this matter of Christian manners. Notice their condition, uh, verses 11 through 13. Here is Jesus and his disciples on their way to Jerusalem. It's the central section of of Luke's gospel from chapter 9 through chapter 19. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to his death. Their condition, these 10 men have leprosy. And if you want to have some Old Testament background, go back to Luke, excuse me, Leviticus 13 and you will read all about leprosy. It's a term used to designate a number of skin diseases. It's not necessarily a life-threatening malady, but it's a debilitating social disorder. It, it's, a, it's evidence, as it were, of the divine curse. These men are ritually unclean. They are pushed to the margins of society. They are patients of the infectious disease doctors of the day. And there's one thing you did not do. You didn't touch them, and they didn't touch you. We read that they cry out to Jesus. They lift up their voices. They had heard about Jesus and his ministry, and yet they don't come close. They stay at a distance. Notice that they do not ask to be healed. Interesting, right? If I had leprosy, what would be my first thing I'd want? To be healed. But they instead don't ask to be healed. They appeal rather to his mercy to his mercy, and they're appealing to his mercy, and they're recognizing Jesus as master, one who has authority. What a combination, master and mercy. 
We see that in Jesus, of course. Now, for the last three weeks in Acts 16, we've seen that the the conversion of of Lydia, the conversion of the slave girl, and the conversion of the jailer are but are actual events, yes, that did happen, but they, they, they're more than that. They're pictures to help us understand conversion, help us understand salvation. And here is another picture, another glimpse, another image of what it's like to be not only sick in sin, but dead in sin. And not only that, but separated from God, alienated from God. At such a distance, there is no relationship. And they... It's a picture of just that gulf between God and man. And you see it just in the the distance between lepers and the rest of society. There's two levels of tension here. Uh, They're on the border of Samaria. And Samaritans, of course, are disliked, if not hated by Jews. And they are lepers. They are shunned by society in general. Well, let's move now from the leper's condition to Jesus's compassion. Notice Jesus' move toward them. He saw. You know, it's so easy just to, to overlook simple words. Verse 14, when he saw them. You know, one of the greatest ways we can love people is to look at them. To look at them. Jesus saw his gaze, his understanding, his compassion. Jesus spoke. He said, go to the priest. Jesus is, he knows the law of God. They need to go to the priest. The priests are going to be involved in in determining if, if they are healed and kind of giving them a blessing, saying the curse is over. And notice, Jesus' word is effective. He healed them. As they go, they are cleansed. That's Jesus to them. But let's think about God to us. Think about it. God goes to where we are. God takes the initiative. The big initiative God takes is called the incarnation, which we will remember and rejoice in here shortly. Remember, Christianity is the descent of God to us not our efforts to ascend to God. And God sees, of course, God is omniscient, omnipotent. Of course he sees, but he looks on us with compassion. It's a theme found everywhere in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. It, it's, I love engaging in conversations with people that try to tell me that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. I love that conversation. Because it doesn't take long for folks to see, uh uh-uh, same God, compassionate. And God speaks to us through his word and by his spirit. Now, how did the lepers respond to Jesus' act of compassion? Let's find out. Look with me at the end of verse 14 into 16. The ten, all ten went, right? They had all to gain and little to lose. And as they went, they went. However, the focus becomes on the one, the one man, one of them. He broke ranks. He didn't follow the crowd. When he saw, 
he responded by returning to Jesus. Verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. He returned to Jesus and he gave thanks. You know, he was not satisfied with just being healed. He must thank his healer. Notice he moved from a loud cry for mercy to a loud cry of thanks. If you put your eyes back up into the previous story, the story of the unworthy servants, uh, verses 7 through 10, you know, a servant does only what he is commanded, right? This leper did what he was told to do, right? Jesus said, go, he went. But notice Jesus didn't say give thanks, but he gave thanks. This man, based on the clues of the text around it, this man is more than a servant of Jesus. Doing what his master says do. He is moving from a distant to a close personal relationship with Jesus. This man made an appropriate response of faith to God's mercy, to the healing ministry of Jesus. The nine. Let's go back to the nine. Silence. Uh, What is not said here speaks volumes. They did not return to express gratitude or thanks. They are selfishly taken up and they are focused on their own cure, their own healing. Think about the whole ministry of Jesus. Many, if not everyone, receives benefits from God. And yet so very few acknowledge him. We see that all throughout the Gospels. All ten want the gift. They want mercy. And yet nine of them forgot about. They ignore the one who gave mercy. The one who extended mercy. They want the gift. They forget about and ignore the giver. They could care less about the giver. You see, this incident illustrates our response to the saving work of God, our response to the call of the gospel, either we don't see, we don't don't look at ourselves and, and, and we do not repent and believe, and we display gross ingratitude, or we do see and we repent and believe and we display genuine, heartfelt gratitude. Now, their response has now put the ball back in Jesus' court, so to speak. Think tennis. How does Jesus respond to their response? Does Jesus have anything more to say? Um, Let's think about his remarks in verses 17 through 19. Uh, What's Jesus' method? Well, he speaks. Notice he asks a series of questions. It's, It's fascinating. Then Jesus answered, question mark, question mark, Question mark. Jesus answers by asking questions. He reflects on the absence of the nine. Three rhetorical questions. And his third question is this. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Not only does he question, he commands. He says to the one man, rise. Remember, that man has fallen on his face before Jesus. He says, rise and go your way. Earlier, he had said, go and show. Now he says, 
Go your way. And he declares, your faith has made you well. I mean, what's the way now for that man? Go your way? Well, it's the way of Jesus, isn't it? So Jesus' method is he speaks. And Jesus' message, he teaches his disciples then and there, and he's teaching us first through his questions. And that is this, the immediate and only appropriate response to receiving mercy from God is to give thanks, to express gratitude. And second, through his declaration, your faith has made you well, we hear that in Luke three times, in, in Mark twice. You see, healing is more than skin deep. It's the idea of wholeness. Here, faith is being isolated as the instrument of salvation. Here is the principle. It's not spelled out in these words, but here it is. Faith alone in Christ alone. Think Galatians. Also, think what we've been hearing in Acts as the apostles go about proclaiming Christ in city after city after city. And third, there's an implication. God extends his kindness even to the ungrateful. We read earlier in Luke 6, for God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Yes, saving faith for the one, but oh, the nine, God was kind to Now, in addition to Jesus' teaching, we need to realize Luke's message. Because Luke is teaching his readers, us. And he selects what he does in order to speak of the life and ministry of Jesus and to proclaim the gospel. And, and, And in Luke's message, one of them is this. God chooses the unlikely, the unlovely, the outsider, the foreigner. That's a theme of Luke, and I hope we get to the Gospel of Luke one day because that is a beautiful theme that weaves its way in and out of Luke. We also see here Luke's message is that Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. He receives praise and thanks. You know, God is expected to be praised, but what is not expected is falling at the feet of this man, Jesus, and giving thanks to him. And and I believe Luke wants us to see the contrast here. The contrast between being exposed to Jesus and trusting in Jesus, my friends, they are not the same thing. Exposure to God's grace is not enough. It must be received. We've seen their condition. We've seen Jesus' compassion We've seen their response, and now we've heard Jesus' remarks. And these remarks of Jesus direct our attention uh, to what should be our initial and ongoing response to receiving mercy from God. And this brings us to the subject of Christian manners. What are manners? Well, you look in a dictionary and you read this. The forms required by good breeding or prescribed by authority to be observed in social or official life. And here is what I believe we see in our text as two characteristics of Christian manners. 
First, an immediate response of thanksgiving to undeserved mercy and grace. Again, the previous narrative of unworthy servants. You don't thank a servant. He's just doing his duty. Yet, how often do we expect to receive thanks from God for what we do? I mean, I know that's the crazy attitude of my heart sometimes, right? Hey, God, look what I've done. Shouldn't you say thank you to me because I've done my duty? What kind of crazy thought is that? And yet on the same, on the flip side of that crazy thought is we don't give God thanks for what he is doing, what he has done. I mean, we're messed up on both sides. We expect God to give us thanks for what we're doing. And we don't turn around and give him thanks for what he has done and is doing and has promised to do. So not only is a characteristic of Christian manners an immediate response of thanksgiving, but the second characteristic is it's not abstract, but personal. It's giving thanks to God through Jesus. Even though this Thanksgiving, this Thursday, is going to look a lot different than the past, whether you're with family, whether you're with friends, whether you're alone, I think most people spend some time around the table, at least it has been growing up in my family, that you, you say what you're thankful for, right? right? It's, a, it's a great thing to do. I mean, it beats the alternative, right? Um, but I want to contrast just going around saying what you're thankful for and actually praying to God, giving thanks. Not so much, I am thankful for, but rather, God, thank you for Go back with me and look at what this man did. Verse 16. Not only is he praising God with a loud voice. Verse 16. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. My friends, that seems like it would be quite embarrassing. What would people think? Here's the fear of man versus the fear of God. Who cares? Who cares what people think? I'm in the presence of the one who has healed me. I'm going to fall on my face at his feet. So two characteristics. It's immediate and it's personal. And so here's the first rule of Christian manners, giving thanks. Why is it the first rule? Well, it's first in that it's the immediate response to salvation, to rescue, to deliverance, and in that it governs and informs all Christian duty. Colossians 3.17, right? And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever, pretty comprehensive. Everything, pretty comprehensive. And then in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Always and everything. That seems like it covers everything in life all the time. 
Have you noticed, because I sure have, uh, that it's somewhat difficult, if not impossible, to be thankful and simultaneously arrogant, envious, unforgiving, proud? Insert your favorite sin in there. It's almost like thankfulness and sin cannot exist in the same place at the same time. I think there's got to be a law of physics. Dan, is it out there? Two things can't occupy it, same time, same place. In just a little bit, we're going to use questions one and two of the Heidelberg Catechism as our confession of faith. And we know it's a, it's a reformed confession of faith and there's three divisions, man's sin and misery, the way of deliverance, and then the life of gratitude that's to be expected in those who are saved. G.C. Burkhauer, a Dutch theologian of the early, uh, well, the 20th century, died back in 1996. He summarizes this order of guilt, grace, and gratitude of the Heidelberg Catechism by saying this. Grace is the essence of theology. Gratitude is the essence of ethics. That's worth repeating. Grace is the essence of theology what we know about God, what we think about God, theology. And gratitude is the essence of ethics, how we go about obeying and serving that God. See, our obedience is grounded primarily in thanksgiving. But what's our problem? What is my problem? Our problem is our rudeness. That's my problem, too. If this is the first rule of Christian manners, then why are we so often ungrateful, so rude? What is our problem? Our problem is twofold. Either we have never understood the reality of our salvation or we have forgotten it. You see, salvation is rescue and deliverance from and to. Salvation is a gift and not earned or deserved. And what do we all do? What should we all do when we receive a gift? Come on, kids. Somebody gives you a gift. What do you say? Thank you. And you can say thank you with your lips moving and your heart stone cold unmoving. Or you can say thank you out of a warm and true and moving heart. So if the problem is our rudeness, and it's my problem too, trust me. The solution is for all of us to enroll in the school of manners. The solution to our problem is to learn and to remember. And scripture calls us to Remember our salvation and to, and to give thanks. We heard earlier from First, First Chronicles 16. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations. Why? Why? That we may give thanks to your holy name. And glory in your praise. The author to the letter to the Hebrews toward the end of his letter says this. Therefore let us be grateful 
for receiving by the work of Christ, as it were, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This first rule of banners is not so much a statement of what we are to do as it is a statement of who we are. It's our identity. Just as the reason that we sin is because we are sinners, so also the reason that we give thanks is because, guess what? We are thankful. We really are thankful. This account of the ten lepers could really be renamed, what, the the thankful Samaritan leper? This miracle account is a living illustration of what Luke has been doing in his gospel. Jesus acts with mercy and calls for faith. And our text, again, highlights the contrast between being exposed to Jesus and trusting Jesus. Because the call goes out to everyone. Some here, some do not. It's interesting, Luke makes it clear in his gospel that Pharisees, the religious, reject. They refuse to hear. Whereas sinners return. Their ears are opened. And we've seen this in our study of Acts thus far as well. This passage presents not so much a call to give thanks as it is a call to recognize that thanksgiving is the birthmark of someone who has been saved. Rank ungratitude, rank ingratitude is the mark of an unbeliever and pagan. Recall how Paul says it in Romans 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul could have chosen a lot of things to say. He said, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Look with me again at verse 15. It's the pivot verse. It's the hinge verse. When he saw. When he saw. See, my friends, that's the issue for us today. When our eyes are opened and when we see our salvation, our initial and our ongoing response is thanksgiving. Everything else flows from a heart transformed by the gospel a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving for the salvation that is ours in Christ. So I need to ask a couple of questions now. Um, Have you seen your misery? Have you seen God's mercy? And how do you respond? Have you given thanks? So what happens when we realize that we have not expressed gratitude, thanksgiving? What happens if we ask our wife this question? Do you think I'm a thankful man? Or a child ask his friend, do do I come across as thankful? I mean, what happens when the answers that we get back and we realize that we have not expressed gratitude, thanksgiving. In fact, there is little to no evidence of that in our life. What do we do? Is there any hope? Of course. 
And the hope for us is found in the gospel, the good news that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You've heard it before and you will continue to hear it over and over again. Why? Because we forget it so easily. That Jesus has lived the life we should have lived and he's died the death that we should have died. And Jesus lived a life of gratitude before God, his Father. And he died for the sin of ingratitude. You see, Jesus died for ungrateful people like you and me. If you read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus died for keepers of the letter of the law, but not of the Spirit, who are often the most ungrateful of all people. Now, why would that be the case? Because they believe that they're only in a relationship with God to begin with, and they only can maintain a relationship with God through their obedience. So why would they need to be grateful? I'm working hard. God's pleased with my performance. Gratitude? It's not needed. You see, the people who keep the letter of the law and catch me on any day, and that could be me, okay? People like this, they don't know God is their father. And they don't know that they are his children. They are living as orphans. They are not living as children of God. God who delights in them. Paul writes to the Roman church, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, that is that is good news. And so today, as I look out over this relatively small crowd, but given the constraints we're under, it, it seems pretty full with a number of our folks um, out today. I think today there's three kinds of people here, as every Sunday there probably are. There are those today who do see, who see their misery and, and, and they see the mercy of God and they continue to express their gratitude. And there may be those here today who have seen, but lately your vision has been somewhat blurred. So what should you do? Well, continue and consider once again your great salvation, your misery, His mercy, and express your gratitude. And then there may be those here today and there may be those who listen to this recording in the privacy of their own home later, their workplace, on some kind of devices or out jogging. There may be those kind of people who do not yet see. They can't see their misery. Oh, they know something's wrong, but they can't see the, the totality of their misery and they certainly can't see God's mercy. What should they do? Just like the lepers, ask him, cry out to him. Ask him to open your eyes to see both the reality of your need, your misery, and the reality of his provision, the mercy that he has for you in Christ. Then, and only then, will you have the reason to give thanks that will endure through whatever circumstance of life comes your way. You see, my friends, there is a connection between true faith and thanksgiving. When we give thanks for salvation, it is the recognition and the acknowledgement that once we were lost, 
but now we are found. Once we were blind, but now we see. And when we continue to give thanks for salvation, it's a recognition and an acknowledgement that we still don't have it all together. We're a work in progress and that we are completely dependent upon Christ for apart from him, we can do nothing. My friends, children of God, children who know God as their father, they learn to say please and thank you and never forget. May grace and peace be filled with increasingly thankful people for we of all people have the ultimate reason, the supreme reason for giving thanks. This book, the Bible, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the complete book of Christian manners. And the first rule is to come or return to Jesus, fall on our faces before him, and to give him thanks with a grateful heart. Indeed, my friends, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father and our God, we bow before you and acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ is not only the founder, but also the finisher of our faith. We rest today in the knowledge that you will complete what you have begun. Oh, Father, we have not saved, nor could we ever save ourselves by our own effort, nor can we maintain our relationship with you through our effort alone. Yet we confess that far too often we have displayed the character of ungrateful people who have not returned thanks to you as we should, not only for our salvation, but also for every good and perfect gift that comes from you. But we also confess, Father, that you are the God of mercy and grace who sent your son Jesus to die for ungrateful people like us. We are amazed. We are thankful. May we give you thanks because we truly are thankful. May we be found always thankful and grateful for our salvation and for all the many blessings of life that you give us. And may we all be found day in and day out growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Jesus is true.